hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 131. So glad you could join me on this Super Bowl Sunday. Before I begin, I should say that Rattle's publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed, all that good stuff to help poetry spread around the interwebs. Now, today's guest is Zilka Joseph, and she'll be here in about 15 minutes. But before we get to her, let's talk about today's poem, and let's call up Jane Merrick, um, who wrote The Boy in the Well, today's featured poem on Rattle.com. Hey, Jane, great to see you again. How do you do? So, um, yeah, so this is just a beautiful poem. It's one of those poems, um, you know, sometimes I'm reading through submissions and I just get a little teary-eyed at the end of a poem, and then I know that that's the poem for the week. And um, it's always nice when you can make a decision that easy. So, um, Thank you. So um, can you just explain about what, what this poem, The Boy in the Well, was about? It's a story that I, um, you know, only heard of peripherally, I think. Like last week, there were some poems about it, too. Um, and I didn't know what happened yeah. in the end, um, but set it up and let let everybody know mm-hmm. what happened because it's it's such a heartbreaking sure. story. It is. It is. Um, I think, uh, like many people, I come and go on the news. Uh, it happened to be that in this cycle, it was getting uh, a lot of attention because you know community thing whereby we are all sort of engaged in in the hope. Um, we've seen many stories about um, persons say in mind disasters, and we. Uh, we're always hoping to get these people out of there. You know, the fear of being buried alive, I think, is pretty strong. Um, so the news had come out, I just checked back, uh, that he hadn't made it uh, on the 5th of February. And I was in a, a writing group, a prompt group, and one of my friends um, brought in a, a list of phrases. And I was just looking at it again, and one of them um, had the word elegies in it. So with uh, with our shared grief, um, sort of a worldwide grief, on my mind, uh, I began using some of those phrases, and this just happened to come out. It was one of those lucky things, but I think also because of the intensity of the emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of those um, stories where I think we've been almost weirdly conditioned for good news with stories like these. Like, I just assumed, oh, that's awful, he's stuck in the well, but they'll get him out, and then that's the last I heard of it. Until um, actually, we were at dinner, and I asked Megan, my wife, if um, uh, what happened if if you know he was out yet, yeah. and she was like, "No, yeah. he died," and and that was um, yeah. So this boy who is um six years old, I believe, yeah, um, six or seven, I forget, yeah, yeah, he fell down a well in, in Morocco, about a hundred foot drop, and um, yeah. and they tried you know lowering, they lowered supplies down, but it was too narrow for anybody to get down to help him out, and right. you know I don't know if anybody has seen um, you know the photos are just the whole village, um you know, coming out and, um, you know, trying to show support and, and everybody working. And then they dug so deep to the side, trying to, to find a way in. And, um, and then when they got there, it was just too late, I guess. Yes. That human effort. Um, there was a good line, I think, in the Washington Post about the community that the world that was united in hope is now united in grief. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me that although I, one cannot understand the particularities of each individual locale around the world, one can understand grief, and one um, understands that sort of communal grieving. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's one of those things, uh, especially as a parent. You know, you just it's it's heartbreaking, and and 
easy to put yourself in that that in their in their shoes, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, why don't you go ahead and read it? This is the boy in the well. Go ahead whenever whenever you're ready. I'll put Thank it on you. screen for everybody at home. Uh, oh, I don't. <laughs> oh, you don't, don't have it with I... you. Uh, oh, you're gonna have to uh, pull it up somewhere then. Okay, hold on for one moment. No rush. Uh, no rush. Maybe you could go ahead and say something about what time this usually happens versus what the web had been oh, saying. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So so uh, Jane pointed out that on the website for the last, it must be like three months, because we had an, a complete collapse of our website, and I restored it from a backup. Um, so the Rattlecast page has said that the show is at 8 p.m., which it used to be like last year. Um, but the show is always going to be at um, the regular time right now, which is noon Eastern um, 9 a.m. Pacific time where we are. And uh, so if anybody was confused, sorry about that. Um, you know, the website, it, it, I should say too, if anybody, I, I rely on all of our huge audience to be my proofreaders because there are literally you know 6,000 pages on the website and I can't see everything. So when there are mistakes, um, I don't see them until someone points them out. So it took three months for somebody to tell me that. But oh, thanks so much, Shane, for for letting me know that, that that had been re you know it was restored to the old version where it was wrong. Okay, um, uh, I I hit screen sharing and it says. Oh you no, know, you don't have to screen share. Just read the poem. Oh oh okay. I thought you wanted to see no, it. No no no. You don't have to screen share. Yeah. I shall read it. Okay. It's here. The boy in the well. Now the dead boy signifies there is no grammar of hope anymore. The maps split open 100 feet deep to where the slow, dark film unreeled for the child. Heavy, the rescuers dug down to their own great alienation. So deep, they knew they were ships sinking, shifting in gravel that whispered like listening breaths. To learn at the end that no, never again, would the father hold up a kite to show the boy whose eyes loved Moroccan sky, blue as his own veins. Now the sunfire eats the village of grief. Now the mother wants only to retrace her steps to the morning four days past. The father cannot bear to look at his land, his heritage that swallowed the boy. The parents are breaking, the cows and donkeys agog. Even the curious slinking jackals sense the void that answers the parents who call and call without words his name. Yeah, just a beautiful and heartbreaking poem, Jane. Thanks so much for sharing it and for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. This is Jane Merrick with... Um, the boy in the well, and now let's go to um, let's go back and see what was going on this week last year. Um, this poem is uh, by Partridge Boswell, and he te- shares a story. Put it up on screen. This is uh, a rooter story. A British boy wakes from nearly year-long coma, unaware of COVID pandemic. And so the story here is that Joseph Flevel, nineteen, suffered a traumatic brain injury. And um, and was put in a medically induced coma um, in, in March March first of twenty 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 that would be, and so was finally awoken from the coma, having no idea that uh, you know the pandemic happened. So uh, this was Partridge Boswell's take on that, and let's listen in. This is aphasia, 
And uh, and of this story, uh, Partridge says, slowly we wake. He has less has less ever been more or silenced such a din. And uh, here he is, uh, Partridge Boswell reading aphasia. Aphasia. That you can't talk yet, can only blink and smile, yes and no, both for perhaps, makes perfect sense. You'll find words later, or not, to correct journalists' and historians' attempts. For now, what can be said? The shit hit the fan, the car, the child. The world collided with itself for a while. We were comatose, then woke, tidied up the mess, and moved on. Your disbelieving eyes widen as if to say, See, shanties? Really? We told you the water was rough. You'll just have to trust us. Overnight, a winding, cabooseless train arrived and left. It's all the same, and for the best. What's this world coming to, if not change? For good or ill, a keelless rudder against the waves. You wake at noon to afterthought, masked family milling about the bed, sensation returning to your limbs. One day soon, sun will glance the dewy pitch of your face, and a word like joy will come fluttering out. Just wait. No need to force it. The unthinkable takes time to process, and the clocks are still broken. Truth is, you didn't miss much, if anything. Another year at home, glued to your phone, arguing over whose turn it is to take out the trash. Some things are hardly worth forgetting. Take it slow. Let your body and mind get acquainted like new and ancient friends who come in from the cold, sit down for tea and gaze out the window at something long lost and familiar to them both, a buried sled or mitten orphaned from its string, a name perhaps emerging through the melting snow. And once again, that was Partridge Bodgewell uh, with his poem Aphasia, um, about the, the boy who woke up from a coma, having no idea that COVID had happened last year. I wonder how he's doing now. At the time, we thought it was, um, you know, it was, uh, the, you know, the vaccines were coming out, and we felt like we were, we were going to be done with it by the end of the year. And so uh, a boy like that wouldn't have to go through much of what we have, but, but that's not how it worked out, is it? So let's go to another poem uh, from Poets Respond History. Let's go back... Uh, Let's see what was going on eight years ago. This is one of the earlier poems on Poets Respond. Um, I guess it would be seven years ago. Let's look up. Oh, this is Layla Chatty. The words come, they choke me. And this is a story. Um, uh, this week I woke up to news that a few miles away, three Muslim students had been shot and killed ruthlessly in execution. As a fellow North Carolina State University student and Arab American Muslim, this tragedy resonated on a deeply personal level. Always horrors like these raise the quiet fear, could I be next? That, quest that the question exists is an ugly thing. 
I have spent days trying to find the words to articulate this grief, grief at a pain that seems unending. I struggle to speak about it, but I feel I have to try. This is my attempt at that. And here's Layla's poem, The Words Come, They Choke Me. The words come, they choke me. Radia, Yusur, and Razan. Too many times I have written this poem. Blood a dark ink, moon a bullet hole. My tongue flaps useless as a bird. The words come, they choke me. Somewhere always smoke. Somewhere always something burning, something snuffed. The sun set again, fled like a wound. I stood. Nothing could move me. The world went on, spinning tiredly, and like that I survived another day. I breathe and life keeps coming. It feels simple enough that I know to be suspicious. Tonight, dark as a flint chip, candles each a pinprick. I swallow a flame within me, shelter it as the sky dons her black veil. And once again, that was Layla Chatty with uh, The Words Come, They Choke Me. And that was from February 15th, 2015. So seven years ago this week, um, another Poets Respond poem from the early days. Now we're going to take a break and go to our main guest, Zilta Joseph. So I'm going to put up some music at a screen and I will be right back. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. As I mentioned, Zilka Joseph is today's guest. Zilka was awarded the Zell Fellowship and the Elsie Choi Lee Scholarship from the University of Michigan. Her work has appeared in Poetry, Poetry Daily, all over the place. Um, Sharp Blue Search of Flame, her book of poems published by Wayne State University Press, was a finalist for the Forward Indies Book Award. In Our Beautiful Bones, her most recent book, which we have right here, has been nominated for a Pushcart, a Pen, and then Michigan Notable Book Award. She was born in Mumbai, lived in Calcutta, and now lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Her work is influenced by Eastern and Western cultures and by her Bene Israel roots. She teaches creative writing workshops and is a freelance editor and manuscript advisor. She's dedicated to coaching, lifting up every writer she works with, and creating a unique community of writers and students wherever she lives and teaches. And here she is, Zilka Joseph. Hey, Zilka, how are you doing today? Hi, Tim. Nice to be here. I'm doing well. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. It's great to have you. Uh, you know, you um, reminded me, which I'd forgotten, that we published you a long time ago. Back in issue number 21, you had two poems. So we featured one of those yesterday. And, and I just love that. that poem, Puzzle, and, um, and what you said about it, too, which maybe we'll talk about later. But um, do you want to start out by reading a poem? Absolutely. Um, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and to... Um, read to all your audience who I probably haven't met um, at all. So I'm very excited about that. So the first poem I'm going to read is uh, actually the very first poem from In Our Beautiful Bones, because I can kind of want to set up this reading with milestones through the book and maybe kind of end with some poems from the end of the book. So I thought this would sort of set up... Uh, a very um, sort of give us a sort of context from where the, the book and the story and my story begins. It's called Voyage. And the epigraph is from the Hindu scriptures, the Upanishads. 
The Upanishads explain how wisdom can be absorbed through sound, how the ear is a vessel, the receiver of divine messages. The lightning fell and I only knew that it entered my eyes and thunder repeated words in my ears I could not understand in the grey-blue light of evening. She silvered itself like a shroud over my car, its engine an animal thrashing in the hold, my heartbeat like oars slamming against every climbing wave, my hands on the steering wheel clawing as if it were a raft. At 16, my father sailed the Bombay ships, nearly deafened by their sound, gales, ice, sent Elmo's fire striking on the high seas, then sailed diesel vessels through squalls when the sky was black and the water black and the sailors' hearts shrunk from fear, all listening on deck and on the bridge and in the bowels of the engine room to what the thunder said. And turning into a vacant lot on Opdyke Road near Pontiac, the storm washed me clean off the road. Wipers swept leaves and yellow-black sky into sea foam. I watched the windshield bulge like a goatskin. It strained but held. Then a dam of white light broke the wall of water shattering its cargo and me inside it like a seed giving itself up to water and to wind. In the west, the sunlight crashing in the broken branches of oaks burned a tunnel of sienna through which the bow of my ship rose to meet the horizon. And my father, the chief, roared to his engineers, their faces streaked with oil and boiler suits sweat-drenched, men whose torn lips bled as another peel shook the flailing vessel, and we turned our faces to the upper deck. Like our Jewish ancestors wrecked on the Konkan coast thousands of years ago, we waited, but no calm came until the wind suddenly fell. My car almost shoved onto its side, now only swayed, a metal cradle spat from the mouth of thunder. I smelled its breath. Its teeth left bloodless marks on my skin. My bones shook. And though it was gone, I felt its pull, a lift, a nameless terror. And my deafened ears received every word it said, what it had said to my ancestors, what it had said to my father, to his men, as it had let the sailors go, as it had let my father go and let us all go home. Yeah, beautiful poem. That was Voyage, the opening poem um, to In Our Beautiful Bones, Zilka Joseph's newest book. And I was really, I'm really glad that you started out with that poem. I was going to actually suggest it. So when you said you, I, I was relieved because it's, it's, it is such a great way to set up um, the, the content of the book as a whole. Um, and one of the, the themes of the book is, um, you know, that, that there's a Jewish community in um, in India is something that most people don't aren't, don't realize, um, and that, that Western India has this Bene Israel community. Um, can you talk a little bit about growing up um, in that community and, and um, what it was like? 
Okay. Um, actually, India has several Indian communities. The Ben Israel are considered Indian Jews, the most uh, with the most ancient uh, origins. They were supposed to have been two ships that came from somewhere in the Middle East and that got shipwrecked on the west coast of India. So there are several small communities on the Konkan coast, which is the, the west coast of, of India. And uh, those communities literally integrated with the, uh, the natives of, of India and, and lived in villages there and worked there. And they were actually called Shanwar Telis. They became oil men, oil pressers. And Shanwar means Saturday, which means they kept the Shabbat. Uh. So the, that was the term for, for the Ben Israelis in, in, in those days, and they settled in villages all over. So though I was born in Bombay, and the, the bulk of the community is in Bombay, um, my father, uh, who worked for Cynthia Steam Navigation, which is why there's so many nautical images uh, in my poetry and in, in books to come, um, he was transferred to Calcutta. He was sailing, actually, even when I was born, when I was born. He was actually, his boat was, his ship was sailing out of New York when I was born in Bombay. Oh, wow. So it's quite an interesting story of how somebody ran onto the key to yell to my father that he'd uh, receive, you know, some the stories go that way, but I'm not sure exactly how true that is, uh, because they did have phones and things to talk to people with. Anyway, so we moved to Calcutta when I was quite young. And so I sort of embraced the culture in Bengal much more than I did in Maharashtra because that I was not, I didn't grow up there. So my schooling, my college, my BA, MA, BEDS, all, all my whole education, everything was in Calcutta. So I embraced uh, the Bengali culture uh, as part of my, my upbringing uh, as well. Uh, we were not very religious, but we did, uh, I, I was I, I was read to a lot of the Bible stories. I had lots of books on the Bible and 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 uh, um, epics and literature and you know. So I absorbed a lot of different kinds of uh, literatures, both uh, Indian and Western, uh, while growing up. And we kept the Shabbat. We we celebrated some of the high holidays. Uh, my grandmother and mother would make some of the the delicacies of the time, which were influenced by Maharashtra, uh, you know, the Western coast, because we adopted all their uh, foods and customs and uh, clothing. So that's why we were called the Indian Jews, mm. compared to, say, the Baghdadi Jews or the Cochin Jews. So that that's a little bit of that, that background. So that those kind of themes go through um, a lot of my writing. Yeah, I love the I love the notes in the back of the book that explain so much of that um, history and, and, and history of the English language too, moving in through through that. Um, just fascinating okay. material. And one of the things we did this um, Indian Poets issue and, and just the richness and vastness of India culturally is just amazing. And so it was really cool to discover this, which is something that I didn't realize. Um, do you want to read another poem? Absolutely. Um, I just wanted to say also, since you mentioned the English language, how complex the relationship with that is. And that's why I wanted to give a context in the back of the book about how English influenced the life 
in India and and um, how it also became a, a weapon and it still is, you know, all over the world where if you don't speak English, you don't get a job or if you don't do this kind of thing, you, you're not good enough. You're somehow less than, you know, so mm-hmm. those are themes also that, that run through the book. Yeah, it's beautiful. So, I love the way that the poems, are, they work on such an organic sort of personal level. They're very like visceral and, and free flowing. And then you get to the notes in the back, which tell all this background. Um, it's just a really great setup for the book. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Uh, I actually set it up also with more personal poems in the beginning, and then it starts like from the micro going out to the macro mm-hmm. and then back. So, uh, all right. So this poem is called Oh Say Can You See? On what page is that on? Uh, that's on page 36, okay, Tim. I know my poems are quite long, so I may not. <laughs> you give me the time warnings, all right, Tim. But okay, well, we're in no rush as long end, as you're. So that I can <laughs> I can end on the note I want to. Okay. All right. So, oh, say, can you see? Look into my eyes, America. How easy it is to dream in Technicolor. Oh, say white, say red, say blue, and every color. We who made who made and make you still. We have built your towers, your tracks, your bridges with our bones. From sea to shining sea, this is our home. Home is where the heart is. Yes, all the broken ones. We pick your fruit, sing Hosanna. We build our hearts here. We bake bread that we break together. We give thanks for every grain. We feed the hungry, for we have known hunger. See this mouth? It sings peace in every language. Watch my face shine. It will light up your pavements, your alleys, your castles, your shacks, your thirsty fields like a harvest moon, like blight and famine, and give back to us the dollars like shekels you have stolen forever. Study then the maps inside my eyes. See the world. Yes, feel my heartbeat, touch my human skin, it is real. And see our scars, they are the same. Our scars, we carry them thick and ugly. We are no strangers to dust and ashes. Here is my war-torn hand. Here are my lips. Let me kiss your cheek. Where do we end? Where do we begin? When I say love, I mean you. When I say home, I mean you. When I say to you, we are so beautiful, do not turn away, do not shatter America, America. For richer, for poorer, we are your beautiful bones. Your heart, your veins are made of us. Why are you afraid? Our blood is the same color. Our skin, so easy to dissolve. Frail border between this world and the next. Oh, sing with me, what is made one should not be pulled asunder. We who are embraced by sweet Lady Liberty, we who are made so beautiful, so varied, so new, so whole again inside the harbor of your arms, oh America, we are you, do you not see? Do not lead us into darkness. Do not hate our gods, our children. Throw us not into camps, prisons, ghettos. Smash your bone, jackboots into us. But deliver yourself from that dagger. 
the dagger you can become. Yeah, another beautiful poem. That was Osei Can You See uh, from In Our Beautiful Bones, Zilka Joseph's newest book. Um, so can you explain a little how you came into poetry? Like what was it that drew you and, and made you become a poet? Um, I think, you know, from very young, I was just attracted to stories and the spoken word and language. And uh, I probably scribbled a lot of little rhymes and ditties when I was young. I did write a few poems, you know, the typical rhymed sort that children write for school magazines and such. And then in college, I was like the editor of their the magazine there, which was a wall magazine. We put, we put these papers on the walls with people's writing and some of my poems. And I began to send some poems out. I got published locally in some of the their journals, but didn't think much of it because I never thought of myself as a writer. I was an English major, and that was my course. I was going to be a teacher or a professor. And I was not born into an academic family as such, though a lot of my relatives were, uh, uh, you know, quite involved in either college teaching or lawyers and stuff like that. But I never thought that was a serious, uh, uh, you know, stream for me to take. And then in my in when I was doing my masters uh, at Jadavpur University, and I one of my professors, uh, Nobanita Dev Sen, who was quite a celebrity in the in the Bengali uh, language, in writing in Bengali language, and recently her daughter has brought out posthumously a. a of her poems, she encouraged me actually when I started writing and getting published. But then I lost that whole connection. And then years and years and years later, uh, coming to the US, I had a lot of time to read and write and attend. I began taking poetry workshops. And some of that and all this, you know, all those emotions and loss and homesickness that was sort of dammed up inside me, I think slowly started um, you know, uh, being expressed through through my writing. And I think because I already had a, a background in literature and teaching and, um, uh, you know, just, just loving the language and poetry, uh, it sort of uh, came together at some point. And uh, I published my first chapbook in 2006 uh, with um, Mayapple Press, who has mm-hmm. published... My current book. Ah, excellent. Judith, Judith Kerman, shout out to me, Apple Press. Yeah, one of the things we mentioned while we were talking um, on the, before the show was that, um, you know, talking about the different things that different cultures bring into a literature um, and, and how the, the um, different styles and, and ways of writing. What do you think? I'm always trying to get a handle on what um, poetry, how poetry exists in other countries. And what do you, what do you feel like the Indian influence brings into your poetry through the Bengali poetry um, and things like that? Um, I'm not sure I can specifically uh, pinpoint uh, uh, whether a particular language has influenced me, but certainly certain um, aesthetic uh, expectations because in, in Indian writing, because especially because of the epics, the Ramayana, Mahabharata, again, the oral traditions are very rich. Mm-hmm. So even if you go back to, um, you, you know, the, the 
Iliad and the Odyssey or any of the older uh, forms of writing, even the Bible, I mean, how much of it was, was handed down orally over the years. So repetition of certain expected metaphors mm. or images or symbols are quite normal. And I think what I encountered when I began writing here and reading my poetry in workshops is that a lot of what is considered traditional may be considered cliche here. Mm -hmm. So, uh, of course, it was, you know, it was quite an interesting learning experience. And, of course, I was reading a lot of American poetry and beginning to educate myself in American, uh, contemporary American writing because my education had been... English literature. So mm -hmm. I was steeped Keats and Shelley and Shakespeare and uh, the Victorian and poets and the metaphysics, metaphysical poets. But for me, it was like learning a wonderful new rich um, culture. But I think, you know, for example, writers like Tagore influence, I think any anybody, any person writing from India or born in India will be influenced in some way by Tagore's mm -hmm. Uh, writing because um, our our national anthem is uh, you know one of his his poems and songs. Uh, another poet that I was influenced is by is Nisim Izikil, who ironically is, is a Ben Israeli poet. He was he's considered the founder of, uh, of poetry in English uh, in India in writing in Eng Indian English. And uh, we began to read a lot of the poets who were writing in India. So Nisim Ezekiel is probably the foremost. And then there were several others, Jeev Patel, Keki Daruwala, and more recently, um, there's Adil Jassawala. So there's a very rich community of writing. These are all the Bombay poets, mm -hmm. what the Bombay School of Poetry, if I may call it that. Uh, and and uh, I think I came away to the U.S. and then I, I had time to sort of go back and look at my roots again mm -hmm. because life in India for me was teaching in a high school. I taught in a boys' school, Anglican boys' school, and, and life takes over. You don't have too much time to, to really go back and, uh, you know, enjoy literature as much as you probably use, except what you're teaching. So I may be teaching Shakespeare, but I didn't have time to read a lot of the contemporary writing happening around me. So yes, I think I've been influenced in many ways, but mostly I would say by uh, the, the poets writing in English in India, because that gave me a sense of that I, I know who I was and I, I could write like them and, and be... Um, uh, be myself. And now I have this American side of me that I can bring in also to that writing. Yeah, it's interesting that you talked about the, the relationship with time, because I feel like that is something that um, that's different about American poetry is that we, we tend to write very fixed in time. And in poems and in other cultures tend to be a lot more timeless, just in, as a gross generalization, but it feels that mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting, your poems kind of feel like they straddle both those lines, because they have a lot of these timeless movements throughout the poems. And then you have these very precise image, you know, precise details that, that fix us to a certain date as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, so it's interesting, is that a conscious decision to, to add through that? Or, um... No, I don't think any of these are really conscious decisions. The I, once I have written a poem, I can create a little more context for it mm -hmm. because I know I want it, you know, in a framework that I can publish. And 
even the arrangement in this book is that there are poems that are from my first chapbook. There are poems that were published in journals many years ago. But it's a subject matter that I could weave together and then create the effect I wanted to mm-hmm. from poem one to the last poem um, in the book. So I, the conscious decisions come later. Mm-hmm. The writing of the poem happens, and then sometimes it's it's something that where I'm expressing, um, you know, my um, sort of anger that somebody's complaining about the Indian cooking smells, you know, mm-hmm. or I'm complaining about colonialism, and in in of course in a much more sort of structured. Way, I have a, a a poem called A to Z of foreign wish which is a form in form, the Ibicidarian, which I've done a double trick on both sides. So I, I've given myself one or two sort of constraints to work with within um, that subject matter. But most of them form themselves, and then I begin to see the patterns and then create the whole uh, book by itself. I hope that answers your yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, I think it does. I kind of wandered off of it. <laughs> no, it's good. I, I love this. Uh, I love, I love uh, the chats we get to have. Um, let's do another poem. What do you want to go to next? All right. I think I will read um, 72. Let's do one of these. Uh, page 72, Mama Would Have Thought. Another long poem, uh, Tim, but I'll, uh, I hope to read some of the excerpts from the longest poem, which is eight pages straight at the end. Yeah, well, we have plenty of time, and we have an hour plus, so okay, whatever, right. you know, don't, don't feel rushed. All right. Um, Mama would have thought that after all these years in America, my love and I would finally have a place of our own No, not a real house house, but a condo beside a pond. Not a real pukur like the lakes in Bengal that dad used to go fishing in, but a man-made pond with a fountain where mallards and black ducks bring their broods of supercharged little ones. And where the pied grebe pops up in spring and fall, and the trumpeter swans I love so much visit too. Then the old regulars, a belted kingfisher and a couple of blue herons fish here. Sometimes in deep summer, cormorants unfurl and sun their long wings to dry while still skimming the water. Dad would love this. Now you've come to see me, Ma, let's go for a walk. Here, take my arm. Let me guide you down slowly to the bank. The pavements are smooth, not like those death traps in Kolkata. You're laughing. But careful, here the ground is uneven and slopes sharply to the pond. You're right. That clump of glass is where the geese I told you about nested last year. The very same year we moved in. So sad. Oh, the neighbors are friendly. No, no one here is like us. Wait, let me show you the giant goldfish. How the big ones wriggle as the heron tries to swallow them. If it rains tonight, we'll surely see some shoals churning on the surface. 
And so funny, once when the kingfisher caught a fish that was too heavy, or maybe it was thrashing too hard, she must have dropped it. For days we wondered who left this dead goldfish on our patio. A sign from the spirit world that you live in now, we thought. And then, you won't believe this, one afternoon we see an osprey. It hovered and plunged into the pond, emerging with a goldfish the size of a kitten in its talons. And it flashed right past the big picture window, not two feet from where my love and I watched, mouths hanging open. Yes, we took a photo, but it was all so sudden. It's all blurry. I'll show you when we go back in. It happened so fast. That gorgeous bird stayed for two weeks. I think it will return this fall. The red-tailed hawks and Cooper's hawks are always hunting around here. What? Are we safe? Yes. Yes. And no. No, ma. America is not safe. Sure, some policemen kill people who don't look like them. It's scary. White men march nowadays, shouting threats. They put children in cages at the border. Have they no hearts? Bad things could happen to us here, too. This is our home now, Ma. Didn't want us to leave. You wept for days. Forgive us. We could not bring you here then. Now your spirit is here. Protect us. Please stay. And that's Mama Who'd Have Thought from uh, In Our Beautiful Bones. Um, I, I was looking at this bio that you wrote, the contributor note for the um, um, issue number 21, which was summer 2004. So, so you wrote this note in 2003, probably. Um, you say, I write poetry when the rhythm and music of words play in my brain and hear nothing but the voices, and my thoughts grow louder and drown out everything else. I run for pen and paper, and the lines rush out, falling over each other as they flow. It is a deep and essential craving, a story that has to be written any time of day or night. And I wonder, I always wonder when I read the old, um, the older notes, you know, this is uh, um, two decades ago. Does this still apply? Is that still your writing process? Actually, when I read that, I was so surprised. I had completely forgotten that I had written it and that it accompanied this poem. I think the essential idea behind that still exists. Um, I am not a prolific writer. I write in jags, sort of, you know, I have this sort of restlessness that happens, I guess. And a lot of it happens while I'm reading other poems and poetry. And that restlessness kind of happens. And then I often, you know, begin, begin to start uh, writing. And because I think I have this way of continuing to write and argue the point, I often end up with two or three poems hmm. when I do write. And that's a, that's a blessing because otherwise there are anywhere these huge gaps between uh, my productivity. So I, I, I'm always blessed when I find I can, I can have more than one poem, you know, every time from the raw material uh, that comes. But I think that that sense of storytelling is uh, very much there. I think that's that, that um, um, sort of impulse for storytelling has grown over the years. Mm -hmm. I think I I do write a lot of lyric. I do write uh, in form a little bit. But this particular book 
is there's much more you know there are prose poems there's storytelling there are the hybrid forms and i think it's it's a it's different from many of my other uh, books where i have much more you know lyric utterances um but i think a lot of people have told me that they've really enjoyed the momentum in this book that built from story to story to like kind of glow, go from like the micro the details of home and little things to like the global aspects of colonialization so i th- i think that urge for storytelling has increased because very often um there are stories that go untold and there are stories that you're expected to tell which may not be the my story mm-hmm. so i i think that sense of really wanting to tell my story and my the incidents that have happened to me and the background of like british english and the background of what the raj was like in india so i want a lot of it was to to hope that people will get curious about the histories of of uh, india pakistan bangladesh you know the southeast mm-hmm. and begin to understand what it was like because you get comments about your english you get comments about your accent and i wanted to sort of give a context of what we grew up with and what were the expectations there and then what the expectations here are and how those kind of but you know heads a little bit and the complexities of of living in you know all these different um worlds and carrying them with you wherever you go yeah well the poem or the the book does that really well um it's so interesting too that you pointed that you mentioned that you when you write that the three poems come out a lot of times because a lot of places in the book where there's like leave a question kind of hanging and then you think you're done with it and there's this sort of you know place you're sitting and then you turn the page and it's a new poem but then you pick up the the same thread again so it's really cool to see that play out you know your writing process play out um, in the context of the book, um, people were also mentioning already that the that how well the uh, lack of punctuation in that oh say you can see poem works, uh, whereas other poems are punctuated. You have prose poems, all sorts of different forms. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that? About how you come to the form of a poem because they do vary so much throughout the book. Right. Um, I I think what I'm really proud of in this book is the variety of of form. And it's puzzled a lot of poems, uh, poets, I think, who perhaps want to cling to, to the lyric utterance and are, are un, uh, unsure of, of these clunky lines or, uh, you know, uh, hybrid forms. And But I, I think what I have allowed in this book is for the form and the content to be as organic as possible. I don't think I predicted the way that it would uh, unfurl itself on the page, except, say, for poems like A to Z, mm-hmm. which is the, the abecedarian, and, and it for, it also is inspired by uh, other poets. So, uh, you know, that there the, there's something very specific going on there. Um, then in the prayer poem at the end, I wanted that, that chant-like feeling to happen. I, a lot of my poems, I don't use, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't use punctuation in a lot of my poems, especially um, in, in my book, uh, Sharp Blue Search of Flame, where I also have prose and, and lyric forms, because it gives me a sense of freedom and it, it allows the, the poet 
and the reader's eye to sort mm-hmm. of go where they want and land on whichever words sort of they want. And sometimes those enjambments create new tensions and new um, textures and, and make it unexpected in, in many ways. So some of the poems like um, The Night the Babri Mosque Fell, I think that was always written in that prose form. Mm-hmm. And I just broke it up so that it would uh, give facts about that particular night because that really happened. And um, the sense of of impending doom, because when you have riots of any kind, particularly communal riots in India, which are deliberately, um, you know, sort of instigated by political parties to create what they want. And I think because of those kinds of climates and what's going on in America, I felt that the readers, no matter who they were, would get that sense of fear and urgency and uh, you know, how helplessly we are when these forces kind of uh, suddenly make you out to be, you know, you're so vulnerable because you have no idea who will knock on your door and ask if you're Hindu or Muslim and pull you out of the house or, you know, what happened with the Nazis and, and, and um, you know, that, that hangs over our heads as well today, it's, you know, in many ways. So a lot of the, the poems of... It, they're very organic. They, they happened in a very organic way. Um, the poem I think I struggled with most perhaps was the long poem, which is about eight pages, whose voices were heard, mm-hmm. because there are fragments. And then within the fragments, there are fragments. And within the fragments, there are references to music, the lyrics. Um, uh, Tim, you must have recognized a lot of the songs. There's Bob Dylan, there's Bobby, there's... Joy Harjo's poems. There's Ginsburg. I mean, so it's a, it became this kind of collage, and it was only later I realized that I could create different textures with each one, mm-hmm. and then allow it to sort of um, one poem to follow the other without it becoming um, just one sort of tapestry. I literally wanted it like to be these patches on the wall and let the reader go where they will, will as they read it. But of course, I did want it to build up uh, a little bit um, towards the end. And uh, that poem, I think, took the longest to sort of work through in many ways because I did not know what to do with all that I had written, but it was all connected. And uh f- and I sent it to many, many journals in the U.S. I did not get an acceptance. But not very long ago, I sent three of my long poems to a magazine called The Punch Magazine mm-hmm. in India. They published some good work and they accepted all three. So at least it's online for people to, to read and um, enjoy, I hope. Yeah, well, I should say, if anybody has any questions for Zilka, leave them in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube, and I'll pass them along. Um, but you, you mentioned that you wanted to read some excerpts from that long poem. Do you want to do that now? Uh, I'd like to end with that, okay. if I may, Tim, because that, that sort of takes me to the last part of the, of the book. Yeah, yeah, sure. So do you want to, but, do, uh, do you want to read something else then? Sure. Uh, I think I'll read uh, the poem on page 67, Hunting White Tigers in Kipling Country. I want to read this poem also because um, I wanted to sort of refer to how 
in Indian history or British India, um, there were many, many royal kingdoms. And what the British were trying to do was sort of choke out these kingdoms little by little. They were very, very wealthy uh, families and they had palaces. And a lot of these these, um, kings and queens and royalty were very influenced by the Western world and Western literature and culture. So they had these huge palaces. Some of them were like palaces in the West. So this is a particular state in India called Madhya Pradesh. Madhya literally means middle, and it is the state that's in the center of the country. Beautiful uh, jungles, beautiful uh, prairie-like lands where a lot of um, tigers existed, but um, now they're all in, um, in tiger reserves. Hunting white tigers in Kipling country. And if you know the history of Rudyard Kipling, you'll know that he wrote the Jungle Book and all of that. He's known for that, but he's also known for writing some pretty um, horrendous Mm -hmm. things about the natives of India. Hunting white tigers in Kipling country. To the Indian kings, the royal shikaris, hunting came as naturally as ownership of kingdom and the killing of tigers, especially 101 white tigers in one lifetime. May the gods preserve and keep the kingly race, the blood of tigers give long life and many sons, was considered auspicious. From father to son, son to father, the game rooms grew through the length of palaces modeled on Versailles, filled with striped and spotted belts, horned trophies, and sometimes one single black and white photograph of a grand old hunt stretched from wall to palace wall. Soon the Rajas invited white sahibs on shikar too, hoping manly camaraderie with the ruling race. Long live and cheers to the gin and tonic, the soft tones of sunlight on the enormous verandas, the reshmi kebab served by turbaned servants would buy them time, help spare their hunting grounds. With fanfare and guns, they would set out, but only after thousands of villagers set out at dawn, beat drums, combed bristling jungles, till tigers leapt from cover and dashed madly towards the wall of elephants, from whose back the bejeweled rajas and solar-topied sahibs thundered a monsoon of bullets, felling every creature that fled toward them. Perhaps some birds escaped through the storm of dust, blood, and death roars. But to ensure continuance of blessing and bounty at the hands of mighty gods and the mightier British, oh, how the sun never set in those kingdoms. The hunt went on till a 101 white tigers Maybe a few less Bengals, leopards, sloth bear, wild dog, cat, deer, hare, boar, antelope, and bison were dragged by loyal subjects. Who can name these humble natives, their children's children, their mortal terrors? Who laid them side by side in a never-ending road? And what was the length of those sepia-tinted hunt room photographs from sunrise to sunset? Turn your head from the wall on the east to the wall on the west. Inhale the mothball and brimstone smell. Witness the blood-blasted fur. Count each black and white stripe 
count every color, count as they mark the mud with their sprawled bodies, drawn claws, now sheathed, become one long red carpet in the dust. And I was hunting white tigers in Kipling country. Um, you have one uh, one poem, I think it might be called Autobiography or something like that, that has a lot of autobiographical details um, that are interesting about yourself, um, including having polio when you were six, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And then um, I think it's in that poem where you say um, that you're... Um, you're not religious, but appreciate religions or a little woo woo, which I just love. Um, and I, so I'm always, I just, I love hearing what people think about the world. So what do you mean by woo woo? Like what, what is that referring to? Because, you know, that's a word that's, that's used very often for people who are, um, you know, believe in spirits or spirituality or believe in the afterlife or connections with the other world. And I've always been very, very fascinated with mysticism in all, of all, in all religions. So, uh, you know, stories about the prophet Elijah or, uh, you know, uh, ancient aliens, which I watch on TV and have a lot of fun with, because it's almost as if they've taken biblical stories of angels and sort of transported them and, you know, move them into. So I, I do enjoy these mm-hmm. things. And um, some of it, I think, has come from personal experience and my connection with my parents. And just being very, very interested in, in some of these kinds of uh, subjects. So I do like to read and watch, uh, you know, clips of, of yeah, yeah, I, just, I love that, too. And I think and, it's because, um, you know, I'm a very, like, pragmatic, sort of rational person. Uh-huh. And so when I can, like, find mysteries in the world to grab onto, I just love them. So I love the ancient aliens, even though the odds of that being true are, like, you know, 0.001%. Still, it's fascinating to imagine. It's, to me, it's even more fascinating because it's connected with mythology yeah, mm-hmm. and ancient symbols and ancient geometry. And and even if you look at the stories of Knight Templars and you know all all what you know their connections to America and and the the, the, the uh, you know the Masons and things like that, it's just very fascinating to me because I always feel there are these these little codes hidden and all these. I think so. And, and there's there's just there's more to the universe than what we like deal with daily, and and that's I, the I thing. I totally believe that. Yeah. I, I don't believe everything I read, but I think there is something. You know more than yeah. So, what do you think it is? Like, what do you think? What is the, what is your like cosmology? Like, what do you think that this universe we're living in is? You know, I don't think I can answer that question because I have, I think, so many cosmologies mm-hmm. in my at the back of my mind somewhere. Um, I do uh, appreciate um, you know certain things about several religions i do have uh, i'm very drawn to buddhism and some of its basic tenets of goodness Mm -hmm. so i don't think i look at everything as like having this god or that god i i do believe there is something that's very powerful that's way beyond us i believe in energies i believe in the endness you can walk into a home and feel the difference you can meet a person and there's something that um, it, to me it's almost tangible so um, I, 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 it's very hard to explain these things to people but yeah. I, I feel them 
And I think I began to trust them in ways uh, over the years. So I think that's the part of me that I would perhaps say the woo-woo part of me that yeah. I can't explain my, you know, the sense of of a spirit world or a larger, a larger, more powerful, maybe universe mm-hmm. or maybe less powerful. I don't know. But there's something that attracts me to um, and I feel connected with in some way that I cannot explain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's uh, like like religions are like that the parable of the blind, you know, blindfolded people touching an elephant, you know, and you, and, exactly. you know, this is a, it's exactly. a snake. No, it's a tree. No, it's a wall, you know, and we're all sort of touching the same thing, but we don't can't get a handle of the whole of the object, which is what whatever this is that that has us here. So I just I so I love all those things, too. I so agree. It's, and I think it's also where we are in our lives and our life's journeys. Sometimes we've had, we've experienced a lot and we've begun to, to get a, have a kind of wisdom that we may not have had. Yeah. Uh, maybe, you know, that teaches us more as we go. I don't know. But yeah, I think it, a lot of it is just believing in in some form of goodness and practicing it in some way, I guess. Yeah, and, and that's what I love about poetry, too. It seems like poets are trying to make a conduit to that mystery of the universe, you know, and that, that's just why I love poetry. So, yeah. uh, so it, it was cool to see you say that. Um, pulling it back to the little more um, writer level of things, um, there's a question from Cindy Gore. She says, uh, Zilka, do you ever second-guess form and rewrite a poem during revision to change its form? Uh, excellent question. Uh, yes, I do. It doesn't happen very often, but sometimes when I'm looking at the raw material in front of me, I begin to recognize patterns, and I can say, oh my gosh, this will work beautifully as a pantoum. Mm-hmm. And I think think that happens because I like in the workshops I teach and in all all the critiques I, I write for people and uh, has taught me that because I can do that I see that in their work and I can say oh my god it would work beautifully as a sonnet you know what if you pulled out this and this and this and then this would be your clinching couplet and try it try it you know so I, I think I have that same way of looking at my work because once I write something I don't look at it for a while sometimes I even forget it's there and then I find this little chunk of something you know stored away in a folder and I go back to it and and I, I actually approach it like an editor would or like I'm critiquing it and so yes I do I do have uh, a poems that uh, uh, might have turned out that way. I can't remember if any of the ones in this book particularly do that, but I think that happened with uh, a poem called Death of a Frog, which is in uh, Sharp Blue Search of Flame. I had no idea what to do with it till I broke it up into two sections. Um, and the longer poem here, which I've already mentioned, Whose Voices. It was almost like a play. Hmm. And then I had to kind of break it up into these fragments because I couldn't figure out how else it would work. <laughs> Um, well, I think we have time for, for two more poems, maybe. So one poem and then a couple more questions or two and then the last oh, poem. So uh, what right. do you want for your penultimate poem? Um, Tim, may I read uh, just that one poem from Sparrows and Dust? Because I just yeah. wanted to show a little bit of like a little bit of play on the page. Sparrows and Dust is kind of long to read, so... 
maybe I won't go there, but I'd, 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 I'd no, hope. No, why don't you read it? It's, uh... Should I read that? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, let me read that okay. because I have a deep attachment to that poem. And also because it, there's a quote from Retsky and my connection to Michigan. And Michigan is home to me. So, And many, many people have been so kind to me here. Uh, sparrows and dust. I believe, I believe in the sparrow happy ungravel from Retke's praise to the end. The first time I noticed a cloud of dust rise from the playground, I squinted my six-year-old eyes and saw sparrows flailing about in gravelly dirt. My mother told me, look, they're having their daily dust bath. See how well they wash themselves. Such a cleansing, dust with dust, letting what's broken, biting or dead flake off. I have always loved house sparrows, even when they drove us mad with their noisy fights and ferocious nesting inside our second floor Kolkata flat. Raining dirt, twigs, eggs, and just-born chicks on us when rival pairs fought for territory on tops of cupboards, chinks in clutter and junk stored everywhere. Our house was a heaven and a kind of hell. Sometimes when streaking in from the hot sun, one would fly into the fan-spinning blades. With a soft gasp, it would die at my feet. Sometimes, how it struggled, poor thing. I would cradle its head as blood seeped into my hand. Give it water, whisper, comfort. Often when I shut its eyelids, a vision of my own feathered body lying lifeless below would flash by. I hovered above, as if I have been somewhere else. Weeping, I will them, come back from the dead. Failed shaman, I never saved anyone or anything. My parents, the animals and birds we loved, the locked flat falling to ruin. Now, years later, in short Michigan summers, I look for flusters of dust, feel a warmth, thrill in my aching bones when I see these birds squirm in soil, then spring from a cloud, fluffing, cheeping, cleansed, whole. I think of the little-known tale I read about the precocious five-year-old trickster Jesus who played by the river one Shabbat evening and who shaped twelve sparrows from wet clay. When his father scolded that he had violated the holy day, he clapped, shouting to the birds, Remember me, you who are now alive. And the living sparrows rose and flew away. Another beautiful poem. Strong shop. Sparrows Thank and dust. Um, is, that a, is that a forthcoming book? Or? No, that book came out earlier in... Um, 2021. Oh, okay. I didn't so realize. It was, it was a surprise. That uh, that book was published, Ridgeway Press, Wonderful People Helped Me, ML Liebler, um, Chris Lord, Charlie Brodsky, friends came together and helped me get that book out. And then May Apple wrote to me saying they're ready to publish my full length. Uh, so I'm like, let's do it. I'm ready to go. Oh, very cool. So you mentioned that that poem has a, a, per, a you know a special place for you, which brings up the other question: um, if, if if certain poems mean more to you, are they are they the poems you find that the readers respond to, or are they like different poems? You know, like some poems have a lot of personal significance. Um, like everybody loves 
Um, they're just going crazy for that tiger poem. Um, everybody loved that that tiger poem on the chat. I, I, I haven't seen the response yet for this. Oh my but, gosh! <laughs> but there, do you find that the poems that you that mean a lot to you end up meaning a lot to other people too, or is there like a difference between the two? Um, I think some of the poems that have personal significance, like Mama would have thought, or the poem that I just read. Um, I think that appeals to people because of the emotional um, content of the poem. But a lot of people, somebody else might respond more to a poem like whose voices were heard or A to Z or foreign anguish, which, you know, it's angry, it's there's tension for different reasons, because each poem is constructed very differently and has different energies. So somebody might resonate more with a poem that has personal uh, content mm -hmm. and um, maybe a more universal reach in some ways. I can't predict that, but I do have a lot of people who are immigrants like myself, first generation immigrants, who have responded a, lo a lot to this particular book mm -hmm. and have thanked me for mining some of those things that they too have been through. So that's very meaningful. So a poem that might appeal to somebody like that may, you know, it may, a professor at U University of Michigan may say, okay, I just like this one poem. You know, I don't know. <laughs> if they read it, that is. <laughs> um, so you mentioned Michigan in this last poem, and, and Michigan seems a very important place to you. Um, and you haven't explained how, how did you end up in, in Michigan? Okay. Yeah. So um, when, when I came to the, when we came to the U.S., my husband and I, my husband came here for work and I followed. Uh, we were in Chicago. Hmm. And I really enjoyed Chicago in many ways because it, I did feel, you know, I could get on a bus, I could go somewhere, I, I, I would go down, way down to Devon Avenue, I would teach ESL at the Indian Institute there. So I, I managed to make a little sort of life for myself. I didn't have a green card, so I couldn't teach at that point or work. But I volunteered and I did, did lots of odd things. And then... Uh, my husband, who works in you know in software and computers, his uh, there were projects. So when when one project ended, then you know his company would find him another post, and that's what happened. So he was uh, he he from Chicago. He came to we went to Auburn Hills, Rochester Hills, because he got a job with Chrysler. He was a contractor with Chrysler. So that's how we ended up there. And I was very, very lonely because being in the suburbs was, you know, almost devastating for me after, uh, you know, having been able to. And I actually learned to drive oh, wow. in the Chrysler parking lot. <laughs> so slowly that and, and then I drove so I could drive myself to the Rochester Hills Library to attend a workshop by Margot Lagatuta. A uh, well-known poet, unfortunately, she passed away. So those were those little steps, little building blocks to, you know, life. And then I uh, um, attended workshops with uh, Mary Jo Fertilette, who was a wonderful, wonderful teacher. I slowly began building and 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 studying, you know, American contemporary writing. Um, Judith Kerman picked up Lands I Live In, my first um, chapbook. Mm -hmm. And then this beautiful book that she made for me now. 
And then I, I wanted to study poetry more seriously and also be able to teach. So I uh, applied for an MFA at the University of Michigan and then came to Ann Arbor when I did get admission. And uh, I stayed here in a little studio while my husband was still in Auburn Hills. Yeah. <laughs> it was terrifying, terrifying. I'd never lived alone in my whole life. Mm -hmm. So oh, wow. it was really terrifying. And I was probably one of the oldest in the cohort. So huge, huge things to adapt to. And then once I was done, I told my husband, this is where I want to live. And we both love living here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm so reclusive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like, I mean, there's a great community of poets in the Michigan area. And, and some of them are here on the chat. I saw, I saw Jack, uh, Jack Riddle here before. Um, Hi, Jack. Yeah, and uh, it just it seems like a re great vibrant place for poetry in that area. So it's really cool that you could tap into that. Um, you know, Terry Blackhawk. I want to give a shout blurb. out to Poetry yeah. Society of Michigan that does a lot for the community of poets in Michigan. And if you're not a member, I encourage people, my students, if you're listening, <laughs> do sign up and support them. They they really do a lot of good work. Yeah, I think we should do a Michigan Poets issue. I'm thinking, but yes. Uh, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> anyway, um, so let's uh, let's wrap up with your your final poem. What you wanted to All read right. last? All right. I just want to say thank you so much, Tim, for being so welcoming, so kind. Oh, it was my pleasure. It's such a pleasure. Doing so much to poets every week. Well, thank, thank you. you so much. Um, so here comes the poem that I have been talking so much about. That was like a hundred pages long. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I. Um, Everybody who saw this poem said, you have to cut it down. So I did. And it's called Whose Voices Were Heard. And I'll read the epigraph so I can situate you as to the aesthetics of this poem. A collage drawn from world and colonial history, myth, literature, scriptures, folk and fairy tales, musicals, popular and religious songs, stories reimagined. So the first one I'm going to read begins on page 88, Tim. Mm -hmm. And it starts at the bottom of the page. Okay. Who created the museums of race in Europe's towns, in Europe's towns, your race museums, your lavish Kunstkammers and Wunderkammers, believe it or not, worlds, freak shows and science circuses, Record newly bought or conquered bodies. You even invented a grid to measure our features, to list the lift or droop of breast or penis. Calculate how soon a baby can be taken, how much a mother will cry, and for how long. For look, oh look, pity him. Oh look, the white man's burden is heavy. Look how heavy it is. And some of you may recognize that line from Rudyard Kipling's poem, The White Man's Burden. Next one. Let us examine the evidence, the gaze, the artifacts, the skin and teeth of the stolen horse, the dry bone remains of lost tribes. Blue is the blood of the Almighty. Oh, bring the good news to the new worlds. Awake, arise. Let save you poor savage from yourself for it is decreed we shall go forth and find great dark continents 
Bind them in holes of ships and feed them salt pork. And we shall forever drink mint juleps as we adorn the streets with strange fruit, as we teach them to gather cottony salvation. Thy, they will be done, so done, so done. What saccharine unction will your tongue taste? Who will give your pouch parched mouth water? Who is this maker who unmakes us moat by moat, smite by smite? And smote by smote. Um, then I will read. Uh, I'll read this one section because of Marvin Gaye and the context of what's happening today. Mother, 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 there's too many of you crying. Will you say, why have you forsaken me? Will you forgive them for they know not what they do? Will you shoot? Will you put your hands up and still be shot? Will your neck be knelt upon till your breath is gone? Will you say, this is all illusion, Maya, oh Maya? Will you say, I am not my body? Will you say, what's going on? Brother, 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 will there be a time for us? a place for us. And I'll end with the last, very last uh, fragment from the poem, page 91, Tim, mm -hmm. ending with Still I Rise. And you'll recognize a, a number of the, the lyrics as well. Still I rise, still I rise. Oh, sing in our own myriad tongues, in our own voices. The goddess dances on the head of the demon. The Madonna crushes the snake with her foot. From darkness unto light. Do you know how to make a peaceful road through human memory? Thank you, Joy Harjo, for that. Do you know how to make a peaceful road through human memory? We know where we're going. Yes, we know where we're from. May we move freely through the passage between lives. Can you see us dancing in the dark and in the rain and in the moonlight and in the firelight and the lamplight? Dancing in the sun, dancing in our own beautiful skin, in our own beautiful bones. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much, Silka. Just a beautiful poetry and a beautiful reading of it, too. I love the way that, that sermon feel. Um, I, I, great, to, great to listen to. Thanks so much for being a guest and for, for sharing all of this today. My pleasure, Tim. Thank you, and good luck with everything. Thank you. Take care. That was Zilka Joseph with um, uh, And Our Beautiful Bones. It's her most recent book. You can find it here. Um, the other one was Sparrow... Let's see. The, the most recent chapbook that just came out too was Sparrow and Dust. Uh, that was the title poem that we read earlier. Um, so In Our Beautiful Bones, uh, poems by Zilka Joseph. That is from May Apple Press. And you can find more of Zilka's work, of course, at her website, which is zilkajoseph.com, which is uh, spelled just like your name, Z-I-L-K-A-J-O-S-E-P-H, zilkajoseph.com. So check out more of her work there and pick up these books. Now, we're going to take a quick break and go to the open lines. So um, let me tell you how that works in case you're new. It's, uh, here you go. Email your poem right now if you haven't yet to openmic at rattle.com. That's openmic at rattle.com. That way I can show it on the screen as you read, like we did with Zilka's poems just now. 
and then pick one of the other. If you'd like to appear on video, you have to do it through Skype so I can import the video into my software. Um, and just send me a chat message to Rattle Poetry. Just type Rattle Poetry in the search bar. Say, hi, Tim, in the message. I'd like to read a poem. And then it'll get you on the list. Um, if you'd like to call by phone, the number is 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Just call, let it ring a few times, and hang up, and I'll call you back. Um, either way is fine. Just pick one or the other. Um, one thing you should know, only talk to me through the phone. Shut off your stream while you're, while you're talking to me after I call you because there's a delay and otherwise it's confusing. Also, uh, make sure you have your poem ready to read because you can't read it off the screen because of that delay. You have to uh, read your own copy. Okay, so I'm going to take a quick break, stand up and stretch. Hope you do the same. And I will be right back with the open lines. Thanks so much for your patience as I stand and stretch up a little bit. We have a whole bunch of people lined up who would like to share poems today, including a bunch of first-time callers. So uh, for the first-time callers, I'll, I'll do you after I do some um, a, a couple regular people just so you see how it goes. Um, we have Audrey Friedman here. We have a 909 number. Where did that go, though? Well, anyway, we have a bunch of new people, though. Deborah Tenenbaum. Uh, um, who else? I saw some new names here. but uh, So let's move through the the poems and start with the prompt for this week was to write a poem about an act of rebellion um and, and uh, so my poem was sort of an act of rebellion not really uh, my poem if you remember last week i was late for my uh, with my poem i didn't finish it in time um the prompt for last week was to write a lenin lyric set in winter and uh and i happened to read this article um and it was an opinion piece in the new york times about um, people who the difficulty of working your way through college, and how exhausting it is, and um, and it reminded me I kind of I f- kind of forgot, but but that was my college experience too. I worked, um, you know, I worked a lot of night shifts, and then I'd go in school and during the day, um, for for I think two years of college, I worked two jobs. Um, I worked in an mRNA lab during the day, then I worked in a group home overnight, and I'd sleep, you know, in campus or you know underneath a tree, so I wouldn't have to waste time walking back to the dorm. Um, it was that kind of college experience. And for some reason, I didn't think of it as, um, as, as difficult. I didn't really think of it at the time. Um, so that brought me back to this. And this is my Lennon lyric. If you go back to episode 129, you can see Lennon, uh, Lester Graves Lennon describe um, the, the format of Lennon lyric. But the first, um, it's an 18-line poem. The first and last uh, words are the same in each line. And that's, that's basically the gist of it. So this was my poem, uh, for last week's prompt, which I'm late with. And uh, here it is. Night shift at the group home during college. Shoveling down the narrow walk, then shoveling through the berm, the snowplow left. I'm through with work, but the work is never through with me. Time for morning meds. Teasing, they call me a pill machine. Coin slot eyes, lever where a nose should be. A mechanical device that knows Schrodinger's math both alive and not like Schrodinger's cat. But if I hurry back, there'll be time for a cat nap, curled up somewhere in the library stacks. That nap would make my midterm bearable. Thirty minutes would be great. I say goodbye to A and S and B, scrape a window in my car with a scraper, 
Hit the icy, empty road like the textbook I'd hit all night while all the clients slept. While all my classmates did whatever kids will do. My focus so intense that when I spin my focus bounding off a snowbank, I keep on bounding home, unfazed, as if work itself was home. That is my Lenin lyric. And Lenin lyrics are hard to write. I like the form. But uh, but it, it it really squeezes you. It's a very constrictive form. I don't know how. There are great poems at the end of last week's episode. If you want to check the open lines there, a lot of great Lenin lyrics. Um, and of course, Lester's whole book in episode 129 is full of Lenin lyrics. And now this is Megan's poem, um, Tik Kwan Duk. And uh, Tik is a Buddhist monk who set himself on fire in protest of the persecution of Buddhists by the South Vietnamese government. And so this is the, the poem about an act of rebellion. Um, Tikwan Duke. Pour the gas like ripe wine in cupped palms. Let the hiss of the match be the last word. That is Megan's poem for this week, her poem about an act of rebellion. Let's see what you have for us. Now, uh, let me see. So, um, let's call up first. Let's do Nivedita Karthik. She's in India, so it's uh, late for her, and she wasn't on last week. So let's, uh, let's get Nivy on. Hey, Nivedita, yeah. how are you doing today? Hey, Tim, I'm doing great. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. It's great to see you. Um, so what do you have that you would like to share? Same as always, two poems, a prompt, <laughs> and a new story poem. Okay, so the first poem I have is the, the prompt poem. So why don't you, do you want to explain anything about that? Okay, so it was basically an act of rebellion. And I was like, what's more rebellious than sort of living every day? Like you're rebelling against death every with everything that you do so it's basically a mix between a list poem and one of the earlier prompts we had of one word per line so it's uh, sort of a mix between the two so that's that's basically what it is it's an act of rebellion against death perfect okay let's go ahead whenever whatever you're ready you wake up each day eat drink walk play travel laugh cry talk shout Whisper, see, hear, touch, taste, think, learn, read, write, walk, run, stand, sit, sleep, and wake up again the next day. Every second of every minute of every hour of every day is an act of rebellion against death. Excellent. Yeah, excellent use of that list poem in the single line. Thanks for sharing that, Nivi. And, uh, and and then the other poem is a prop poem, and I'll, I'll put it's up a new story. Yeah, new story. I mean, say yeah, a new story. I meant so. Loose pig wanders into British social club, of course. Um, so here's the story on screen. Do you want to explain what this was? Okay, so there's this social club. I think it was in Durham, and this pig just walked in at around 10 p.m. at night, and apparently they tried so many things to get it out, but finally, I think it was the sour cream and onion chips that actually helped them lead the pig out the door. <laughs> I mean, even pigs have taste for crisps, as they call it in the UK, so who knew? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I, yeah they could lead me out that way too, I think. <laughs> okay, so, so go ahead with the poem, a temporary member. A temporary member. This club was so popular as it had all the perks that the waiting list was a mile long and growing. But the members tonight were in for a surprise as they were going back home in their Lotuses, BMWs and Mercs. For in wanted a new member, cool as you please. Looking here, tasting there, inspecting here and meeting some folks there. Truly, you'd never seen a new club member at such ease. 
But then there was the problem. The club was full with room for no more. So how were they going to show him out the door? They cooed and cajoled and tried everything they could. But this new member, his ground firmly stood. Nothing swayed him. Nothing except the one gift, bribe, he was ready to accept. With some sour cream and onion crisps, they gently coaxed him out till his owner came to collect him. Percival of the princely poor science not. Excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nivy. I got to re-log back into my... I don't want to show my, my password on screen. Because <laughs> you know, they, they log you out exactly seven days after the last time you logged in. So um, so it always happens mm-hmm. in the middle of the show. But, but yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. That's a great poem and a fun story, as always. Always a pleasure talking to you, Nivy. Thank you, Tim. It's lovely talking to you, too. Take Have care. a great Sunday. You, too. Have a good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Nivy DeCarthic. Um, that was a, a temporary member um, the poem about the pig wandering into a social club. And now let's go to, um, let's go to Audrey Friedman. Okay, so let's try the phone instead. Hey, Audrey, sorry we, uh, we couldn't connect on the Skype. Oh, I hear myself in the background. Can I mute, mute that? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm okay. going to shut you down and move away. Okay. Excellent. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure what was happening, but that's okay. We got you on the phone. Um, that's excellent. Um, yeah, I just set up Skype on my new iPad this morning, so probably didn't click something. <laughs> yeah, there just must be the ringers off somehow. You might be on some setting where uh, where it's like do not disturb kind of thing. Um, yeah, well, but, I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. We'll, we'll see you next week, but uh, but we'll hear you this week. And you have uh, What the Sea Says Tonka. Um, do you want to explain a little yeah. bit about what this poem is? Okay, so um, this is recently recently on vacation for three weeks on the island of St. Martin and loved my time alone sitting by the water. And this series of Tonka, um, which is five, seven, five, seven, seven syllables, mm-hmm. um, is a conversation between me and the sea. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I, I love Tonka seeing one too. Let's go ahead. Whenever you're ready, go ahead. Okay. What the sea says, Tonka. The grumbling water speaks of too many secrets, tossed in waves to sink and be trapped in coral reefs, a jail to keep what we can't. Tonight seas murmur strains from Chopin nocturnes. Thoughts lift like seagulls only to dive at sunrise, scavenging today's poems. I'll read you a cards. I draw the dancing golden sun. Now shed your fears. The cosmos will support you. My salt will keep you afloat. Today the seas ask me to wade into mirror stroke its ageless skin. Introspection is vital for embracing the next waves. As much as I hush you into needed repose, you can't remain here. Take from me mementos, talismans for tomorrows. Salty seawater scours death from calciferous tombs offering art for jewelry or keepsakes, also cleans nests for new lives. 
On days when I can't make decisions, you instruct me to look moonward. Trust the ebbs and flows to lead me through rough seas to harbor. The purple of dusk is a signal. Time now to soar above the melting coin of drip, gold dripping flashes of yet unwritten mornings. Today you shimmer like Aunt Harriet's satin 40s wedding gown edged with white Alentian lace. Seas say, let's revisit love. Philanderers are the weakest of all swimmers. Monday, I'm serene. Tuesday, I'm towering waves. The troughs are hard to escape. Turgid seas heave, laboring crown, then the birth, sandy offerings, an occasional conch shell. Sargassum and fleshless bone raise rusty anchors. Raise rusty anchors, enjoy the untethered drift. Uncharted seas plead, exploration of sea flaws, not exclusively mine, yours. Susurus, uh, actually susurus of sea voices, barely a whisper, no sage words spoken. Do you wish for me to hush, to hear out your prophecies? The seas say you are odd, a Pisces allergic to all scaled fish who think you haughty. I'll find a haven for you, Poseidon made a promise. The plains of my face are abraded by gusts of wind. I'm often ravaged, white cat seas like memories of scab knees and iodine. That was wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Audrey. That was uh, that was uh, what the sea says, Tonka. I love that we got to go yeah. on the vacation with you and, and share your thoughts that way. It's the perfect use of poetry. Now I have to go back to continue the series, don't I? <laughs> yeah, excellent. Good excuse. Well, I hope you enjoyed. Glad you got a good vacation too. Oh, thank you, Tim. Yep. Take care. Okay. Thank you. That was Audrey Friedman with "What the Sea Says." What the seas say, Tonka. Let's uh let's get Caitlin Buxbaum. <clears throat> Hello. Hello, Caitlin. How are you doing today? Oh, not too bad. It's been uh it's been a week, but on the on the upswing now, I think. So Well that's good to um, hear. A whole yeah. new week too, by the way. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> so so what did you have that you wanted to share? A poem that I wrote last night. Excellent. Um, Hot off the I, press. Yeah. I, when I got the prompt, or when you said the prompt last week, I first thing I thought of was a poem I wrote about, um, a poem called Insurrection about um, some of the events from the summer of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, but the next thing I thought of was that's, you know, it's an old poem now. And that, the next thing I thought of was um, a song by angels and airwaves. that's called rebel girl. And it's uh, on an album that came out a few months ago. Um, 
and I was thinking about it all week and I was like, well, if something comes of it, great. If not, oh well. Um, and then last night, um, very unexpected content because uh, <laughs> the song is, is not, the poem is not what the song is about. Um, those are different things. But anyway, um, this is what I have. So Excellent. Well, I'm glad something came of it. Yeah, let's hear it. Rebel Love. Oh, and I don't know if I... Did I say golden shovel? I don't know if I did, but it is. You didn't. Ah, okay. There you go. Yeah, it is. I see it. And a golden okay. shovel, for people who don't know, is um, the, the, the epigraph there is written out in the last words of each line. So, uh, so dance my little rebel girl and show me how, uh, uh, how, you, how you move is, uh, is from the poem. Oh, I can't get, where is this? Okay, there we go. So I'm just trying to get your video. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, here, go ahead. All right, Rebel Love. The day my aunt dies, I watch the snowflakes dance for hours. I text my three closest friends, my unlikely heroes. They console me, and little by little, I become grateful. As much as I sometimes rebel against the idea that I am loved, I am that girl who is blessed beyond measure who lives and breathes the kindness of others. If I could show just one of my loved ones what they mean to me, I would hope they'd see the light they carry, how it fills my heart and reflects off my eyes. I'd pray you, dear reader, would feel just as driven by love to move. Excellent. That was Rebel Love, Caitlin Buxbaum. And I love that form, the Golden Shovel, too. Excellent use of it. That's one of the newer, newer forms that's really gonna, that's really taken off, I'd say. Yeah, I definitely um, enjoy those. Those are my top two right now, I think, are the Golden Shovel and uh, Lennon Lyric. So. Very cool. Well, well yeah. thanks. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Caitlin, and hope you have a good, uh, you get a lot of Sunday left up there in, yep. in Alaska. What time is it? Is it, is it 7? 9.45. Oh, so we're not... only an hour Oh, you're only you an hour back. Yeah. <laughs> I'll stop feeling sorry for you. <laughs> well, when I wake up like before the show, you know, yeah. I set my alarm for stuff, but I've been, I've been subbing every day, um, mm -hmm. substitute teaching. So I'm getting up early anyway. I gotcha. So well, well, I'm good now. Don't worry about me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks, Caitlin. Take care. Yeah, you too. Bye. Yeah. So that was Caitlin Buxman with Rebel Love, a golden shovel, the form invented by Terrence Hayes not too long ago. Let's call up Guy Chambers. Let's see. We have, um, yeah, we have a whole bunch of people. Oh, um, Here's another first-time caller. Let's try... Let, let's call up Karen Karen Marker, actually. And then we'll do Guy Chambers. We'll do Jerry Stephenson, too. We have Richard Westheimer here. We have um, Bev Wendell Atherstone, Zachary Honeycutt, Ka Carolyn Codd, Patricia Casey, um, and Guy Chambers, who I already mentioned. Okay, so let's do this first-time caller. It's, it's a Karen Marker. Okay, you're good? Okay. <laughs> yeah, so so what it is, is it's like one of those old radio shows where there's like the FCC delay, except it's the interweb stream delay. So uh, so you have to shut off the, the mute, mute your, uh, your stream as you're, you're calling. So what do you want to share today? It's great to see you, Karen. Thank you so much. This is an incredible show. I'm so glad I discovered it. Yeah, I'm, I'm so, so glad you did too. And I've been actually thinking so much about book banning. That's a topic I... Um, wanted to read about. Yeah, um, for sure. We it's actually interesting that it's spiked up because in the the winter spring issue was at the printer, and I talked a lot with um, um, 
Um, Janice Ann Harrington, who's a librarian for the Librarian Poets Issue, about the crucial role libraries play in keeping censorship in check because, you know, libraries are sort of the last offense in some ways for, um, you know, for Fahrenheit 451 to uh, come, come true. Um, yeah. so, so then this, this, you know, boiling up. Um, yeah, so, so you wanted to write, you have a poem about this. This is Cage Bird Legacy. So do you want to explain a little bit about what? I, I, well, I, I didn't, I wrote this a little while ago. Um, not to any specific article about the book banning, but I actually was introduced to my Angelo by by a teacher soon after Cage. I know why the Cage Bird Sings mm-hmm. was published, and um, so this poem came out of that. And I've actually that teacher ended up teaching with my Angelo. Um, it was a high school English teacher who became a professor with her, and um, so it. it a lot came back to me as I was as I reread her book that I hadn't read since high school. Um, so, Cage Bird Legacy for Maya Angelou. In those years when dreams were dying, four students' blood on grass where I'd been standing, and no one found guilty. Your tales of an American childhood got into my head flapping wings wild, mad against the bars. Before there was talk of banning your book, my 11th grade English teacher assigned I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Of course your name wasn't Mary, would never be reduced to that from Marguerite. You became a best friend, confidant, my muse. With a crippled uncle, Maya, like your brother said with a stutter. I fell in love with the freedom of your feather dance, your way of writing poem stories. You whispered things to me in the suburbs I'd never heard about being black, female, coming of age, what had made you stop talking. You burst open secret shames I thought were just mine. I'll list the mess of a family my country. When I took up a pen, followed your flight towards the sun, worked for years in Oakland schools with kids who struggled, listened to graduating kindergartners sing while I wept, I heard you say, you must not let cages constrain you. There are so many names to remember, but I never forgot you'd been the first to teach me the words of their song, shown me how to lift my voice like theirs till earth and heaven ring. A wonderful poem and a great, great tribute to the way, you know, the importance of books and, and why they shouldn't be banned. Thanks so much for sharing that, Karen. Thank you for letting me read. Yeah, and, and where are you calling from? I forgot to ask. I, I actually am coming from Oakland, California, and I, I grew up in where that poem origins stirred me was uh, Ohio. Ah. And I, I was at Kent, Kent State had a high school connected to the university to train teachers, and I, I was there as a ninth grader when the four students were shot. Oh, wow. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you could be on the show and share that great poem, and I hope you can uh, join us again soon. Yeah, definitely I will. Thank you so Excellent. much. Yeah, thanks. Have a good day. You too. It was Karen Marker with uh, Caged Bird Legacy. And, yeah, I think the, the, the whole book banning and canceling thing – um, I think we need to, um, I don't know, find a way to make it embarrassing to want to, to ban words. I mean, they're words.
let's see. Let's call up. Um, let's see. Let's call up uh, Richard Westheimer, and I'll see. We have, we've got Jerry Steffen, so we got a whole bunch of people still uh, waiting on the waiting on the lines. Hey, Dick, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Skype has changed. Has it? I now have a side-by-side picture of you and me on the screen. Oh, interesting. Mine hasn't. I, I was wondering, it seems like they're updating things and it's causing problems. Like, this show doesn't go as smoothly as it used to with, with Skype the last couple months, I've noticed. They're pro- I think they're kind of, um, you know, Zoom is uh, more convenient in a couple ways, even though it's less convenient for this show. And so I think maybe they're trying to compete in, in up- <laughs> upgrading what they do. Just to change things for the worse. Yeah, that. that's how it usually goes. <laughs> Oh, what a wonderful show today. And it was wonderful to hear from this uh, Jewish community about uh, this Jewish community in India, which I was aware of, but hadn't actually engaged with somebody writing about it. Yeah, I I had no idea that, you know, back 100 BC or so was when they first arrived. Uh, It's fascinating, that history, which is in the back of the book, uh, in in our beautiful bones, which I had no idea. I didn't know. Yeah, there were similar uh, communities in Mexico that have emerged in the last century from uh, people who were expelled during the Inquisition in the in the um, late 15th century. Wow! Wow! Settled there and absorbed sort of into the world there, but then have reemerged as Jewish communities. yeah, it's just very fascinating. Um, and I don't know, just there's so much in the world that I don't know. It's always cool to learn new things. Yeah. Um, so what do you want to share? We have Rebellion is an Erasure. Uh, yeah, why don't I, uh, uh, that's a very quick poem. And I just sort of, I'd never done an erasure before, and I was having trouble sort of getting into it. So I just tried an erasure poem. Interesting. And, yeah, and what is this erasing from? It's really re- re- uh, re- erasing from the OED um entry on rebellion ah okay there you go interesting and and it was really interesting because the word rebellion basically goes back to its latin origins meaning the same thing like it hasn't sort of like oh interesting yeah that's rare it's like one of these things that did not transform because it's such a universal everything right Mm -hmm. um so uh rebellion as erasure from the oed entry on rebellion more in current use, and of multiple origins, partly a borrowing, partly a refusal or treatment translated, less a resistance to history, period. Never resist the cause. Men bred up had for some time been suspected. An expedition arises huge and clearly defined. I'm sorry, an expedition, a sort of indistinguishable chaos out of which arises huge and clearly defined falsehoods covered with scorn. Money changed everything. Oh, excellent. Very good erasure. And those erasures are just so fun to do. That's the first thing every time I teach a a poets in the schools type thing. That's always the first day project because they have so much fun scribbling on a, you know, paper and making a poem that um, it's it's so cool to carve these out. I love it. Yeah. And this this went through three or four iterations with the same thing. And and I've got all the versions at Mm -hmm. some point to figure out whether there's a a piece out of it I want to 
uh, sustain. Yeah, very fun. Thanks for sharing that, Dick. And then, uh, and then you want to do a, a poet respond poem too, I think, right? Yeah, uh, this was about the same thing as the poem that, or, or based on the same news story. It sort of is a different take into mm -hmm. the. And uh, this found there's a lovely little um, poetry poem a day website called Autumn Sky. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. it's a good one. It's it's a good one, and I submitted it to her, and she put it on and loved the comments about the form. Were oh, great! Mm -hmm. Track to that, so a Lenin lyric found its way outside of the Rattle universe. Um, oh, I'm looking at the wrong one. I think this is a uh, what's the title? Autumn Sky Daily. Well, so the one I'm to you. Is oh, correct. I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I was just reporting on last week's prompt. Oh, I got that. you. Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. No, yes. I was I was looking for the poem and miss misheard. So, oh, that's cool. So they got an Autumn Sky. Excellent. Another place for where people can send uh, the poems that don't get into the poet respond, which is always really good to know. Yeah, it it is because they're great poems that come out of that. Uh, at least the ones I've heard on here. So uh, this one is about the same story as the one who uh, was in was in Rattle this morning, a little different take, uh, called Crane Fly, Mantis, Moth, Flame. Crane Fly, Mantis, Moth, Flame. A boy falls in a well. His people gather. His people dig with bare hands. His people breathe to the boy. They hold each other. They feed each other. They stand silent, listening. They are trailed by TV crews. We watch from our living rooms, like crane flies stuck to our screens. We peer at the scene. It's like a movie with no score. We know the score. We've heard it before. It's what plays in our head when we wonder, will we be rescued when the boy is rescued? We want to be rescued. We pray like mantises, our hands clasped before our round mouths, churring, oh, and ah, and Lord, please. How can the boy die? with all of us praying, with all of the cameras showing all of those people digging. The heavens hold a single star fixed above the well. No one but the boy can see the star. No one but the boy can be so still amid all the roaring. No one but the boy drinks the water meant for him. How can the boy die when he He's a star no one else can see, drinks from a well no one will drink from again. How can the earth be moved? The diggers break through. The boy has died. It cannot be otherwise. All of Morocco cries for Rayon. The place and boy have names. We crane flies are still stuck to our screens. When I say we, I mean me. When I say scream, I mean flame. Yeah, another excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Richard. How how much media coverage was there? Because I you know, I don't have TV, let alone cable TV. And this was so much like um, that that the 
um, baby who got stuck in the well, like way back in 1980, the late 80s. Do you remember that? Where, um, yeah, it was yeah, one of the first like wall to wall. It was the, the cable news networks had just started. So there was the first CNN could cover it for the whole time, I think. And if I remember right, and, and it was just, it was a very vivid memory. I was, a, I was a child myself at the time, but, um, it's yeah, what, what, a similar what, what, story. Yeah. That, um, that story echoed in my mind. And what I thought about as this was unfolding is if the boy, lived the story will live Mm -hmm. the boy died and the story only lives for the people in that village yeah yeah you remember baby jessica but you won't remember little rayon uh 30 years from now yeah and and there's something about underground that people who are lost underground that we you know there there are thousands of children died the day this boy died of terrible tragic causes but why do we remember these underground stories mm-hmm. yeah. um i don't know yeah yeah well great poem um thanks for sharing that and, and joining us as always dick yeah thanks good to see you tim yeah, good to see you too bye so uh, richard westheimer with a uh, crane fly mantis moth flame and uh the other poem was the erasure of rebel okay let's see um and um let's go to Carolyn Cod. Well, Carolyn's not answering. We'll try to circle back in a little bit. Um, let's go instead to Jerry Stephenson. How are you doing? Hey, Jerry. How are you doing today? Good day. I'm doing good. I just got to hit a button here now. Yep, you got to hit the yeah. old camera button. How are you doing? Hey, Jerry. Oh, you and you got to hit the mute, too. <laughs> Holy moly. <laughs> Oh my God! It's all. And I just had the phone ring on the landline too. I'm losing my mind. Okay, I'm on. We <laughs> have, yeah, I, we're good. We're good. We're good. Yay! So, uh, so how are you doing this week, Jerry? Actually, I'm doing really good. Yeah, I am. Great. Really? Well, you always, you always seem really good. So it's oh, it's great you. to well, hear that. I, my average is pretty good. I think that's what helps. Right? Mm-hmm. But we're kind of high averages, and today I'm having a higher than average day. Excellent. Bonus. Yeah. You know, bonus. <laughs> <laughs> great here. So, what do you have to share? It's a rebellion poem. I think. <laughs> Up the revolution here, I'll tell you. Actually, my life was surrounded with revolution. I never realized. The prompt got me again. Uh, Louis Riel and the Red River Rebellion. I don't know anything about this. Do you want to explain it? or or I will. Manitoba, where I grew up on the Red River, okay, Mm -hmm. had uh, Louis Riel, the guy that uh, tried to overthrow Sir Johnny McDonald and the Métis and the Creed and all this stuff, uh, had a rebellion. The first part of it was in... Happened about 1815. It was called the Red River Massacre. Mm-hmm. Bad one. Yeah. <laughs> Bad one. Sounds like uh, it. But then in 1860, the Red River Built Rebellion started, okay? Mm-hmm. And that was that was dicey. But they, we were all had to get out of Canada and lived to Montana for a while. Then we brought them back. We had what was known as the Northwest Rebellion. Interesting. And that's what invented the GMP and all this other stuff. Oh, wow. So a little bit of history. And my family kind of arrived in the middle of all this. What are you going to do? You know? <laughs> It didn't say that in the travel guide, you know. Revolution <laughs> taking place, please, you're moving right there. My family had to leave Iceland because of a cranky volcano. Interesting. Well, that's a good good reason to go. <laughs> Very good reason to go. As my dad always said, never build near a cranky volcano and always build high. Manitoba tends to flood a lot. So here's the story. Ah, father said, yes, his father and grandfather purchased Louis Riel's horse in 1885. I have no reason not to believe this. My family would have needed a horse. Louis's horse was available 
And my family's survival had a lot to do with Métis anyways. When they settled on the west shores of Lake Winnipeg in 1875, they could never imagine minus 25. Iceland doesn't get cold. Uh, winter Floods in the spring, but they don't do there either, and it's mosquitoes, and the farming and fishing, unlike they knew in Iceland. Just totally different. It was tough. The dark surprise was the cloak of smallpox that landed on their shoulders. First hit the dark, First Nations and Maine, they lost 40% of the population in that part of the province. Not to be outdone, the Icelanders lost over 60%. It was they lived together and died together. It was some tough times. But the politics of Louis were tangled with the state and church and everything, everything. Just not just the British. The British had a lot to do with it too. And the Canadian thing. So they turned and they tried and tried and then they hung Louis in a Regina. Because they tried and tried him. And he tried them. It was terrible. Anyways, I'm gonna carry it away. Had Regina, about as far away from Winnipeg as you can get back then. Okay, that's it's far away, the middle. It makes kind of the middle of North America, and you know they wanted to get him out of the homeland. I'm getting lost. Father claimed that the rope they hung Louis Riel could reach all the way from Regina through Winnipeg down, make a loop around Montreal, and thread the needle of the government back in Ottawa. Though fishermen, that's my family, okay. Low fishermen, they had no need for all that tainted rope. Of course, was a bargain. <laughs> That's great. I think you invented a new form of poetry, too. Well, I, the, I've been uh, working. First time I've tried kind of a prose thing. Well, I'm and, talking about the um, the riffing between every line. I've never, oh, yeah. <laughs> never heard a poet do that before. Uh, I appreciate it. Well, you, you can call that the Steffler effect. No, that was a lot of fun. Good show again today, too. Yeah, yeah. My, yeah, it really ah. was. A lot of fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, always my pleasure. Take care, Jerry. See you next you time. Take your care, Doug. Thanks. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. It's Jerry Stephenson with Louis Riel and the Red River Rebellion. It's more, more learning. I love learning. Um, let's see. So who did we... we we're going to circle back to somebody. Oh, that was Carolyn Codd. Let's try Carolyn. Hey, Carolyn, you are live on the air. The Skype wasn't working, so I called the regular phone. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm fine. I'm so, glad to be here. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. So what did you want to share? Um. I have these um, three poems. Um, the one is just a little one, the one line, um, one word per line. Poem yeah, I see all three here. They're all short. Why don't you go ahead and, and, uh, and share all three? Yeah. So the first one is from the, the one word per line. And um, when I thought about that, it, um, I tried to think of ways of putting words together that are kind of different, like as a memory aid. Mm -hmm. And um, it took me back to when I learned to read music. And having to think of, we we learned EGBDF and FAD, the lines and the spaces and the, to read the notes on the staff. Uh -huh. um, and so thinking about that, I came up with this um, countdown. Interesting. Go ahead. So it's countdown. Every good boy does fine. Finding a clue eventually. A musical key. Major minor play excellent that was very cool thanks for sharing that countdown mm -hmm. and and then what's the next one sky blue then yeah the other it's two um one is a spanish version of the one that i wrote originally in english and this is when i was living in spain so i still most i wrote in in english mainly i wrote a few originally mm -hmm. in spanish but um then i like gardening 
And um, so once in a while, I'd write about some of my flowers. And um, then in the nursery where I bought my flowers, um, one of the young women told me that she really liked blue lobelias. Mm-hmm. And since I had written a poem about that, I thought I'd write it in Spanish for her. Oh, that's very cool. Do you and, want to read um, it in Spanish first and then and then English? Um, well, I think I'd rather do it the other way around. <laughs> okay. Um, partly because I think um, I think it sounds prettier in Spanish. Mm-hmm. So maybe if I read it in English first. Okay. Then... Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. So this is sky blue. There's a piece of blue sky in my garden. With sunny skies, it blends right in, even though it's planted there in the ground. But when skies are gray and rainy, its blue skyness really stands out, bringing me patches of happiness. It's you, my beautiful blue lobelia. Oh, that's a sweet poem. And then in Spanish, my Spanish is a little rusty now, but <laughs> um, it's, this, it's azul celeste. And mi jardín hay un trozo de cielo azul, con los cielos soleados se funde bien, aunque está plantado allí en el suelo. Pero con el cielo gris y lluvioso, la calidad de su color realmente resalta, trayéndome trozos de felicidad. Eres tú, mi bella, la bella azul. Oh, that is beautiful in Spanish. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carolyn. Yeah. Okay, you're welcome. Yeah, have a Bye-bye. good day. Bye. That's Carolyn Codd with um, with Sky Blue and uh, Countdown. And let me make sure I got to everybody. Yeah, we got to. Oh, Zachary Honeycut. Oh, and Joe. Oh, sorry, there's some people down at the bottom. Um, yeah, so Zachary Honeycut and Bev Wendell Atherstone still have to call you guys back. Let's call you up now. This is uh, Zachary Honeycut. We're calling here. He had some, uh, yeah, Valentine's Day poems. Hey, Tim. Hey, Zachary. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good. So uh, you have some Valentine's poems, huh? Yes. I thought that I would circumvent the rebellion theme, as fun <laughs> as that sounded. And I would, uh, yeah, I, I used to be a hopeless romantic when I was in high school a bit. And then when I got older, I got a little hip and I realized... Maybe I should see if the girl likes me or if she's even poem-worthy before I write a poem about her. But uh, Yeah, that yeah. seems to be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have two uh, really cool uh, romantic love kind of poems that would work for Valentine's Day, yes. Very cool. I'm glad you do, because we were going to do a Valentine's Day poem prompt, and then I completely forgot. And then I'm justifying it retroactively by saying that I that we did it last year, so we shouldn't do it this year anyway. <laughs> but Yeah, I was, I, wondering, I was wondering, because I, I saw that rebellion, and I was like, wait, I was like, why Why isn't he doing love poems? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I should have. We were, we were going to do say do, write a love sonnet, so maybe, um, if anyone wants to write one for next week, but we'll save that for next year, I think, otherwise. Because uh, you don't want to do a love poem every Valentine's Day, right? It'd get boring, and we're going to be doing the Rattlecast forever, so... Got to oh, save it. Awesome. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that, Tim. <laughs> okay, so Taylor's Eyes is your first one. Go, why don't you go ahead? Yes. Taylor's Eyes. Think about you every day, about your eyes and how they're blue, and how they seem to speak and say with one burst of color, I love you. The way they brighten when you're excited and fill with light when I am near to add the words behind your smile when you're delighted 
and silently transmit them to my ear. I love it when your eyes tell me what I want to know about whether you're feeling joy or woe. As warm as sunlight on a wintry day so cold, no secrets they do hold, yet what plots in them unfold when they see me and enlargen and then look away. Your eyes are blue but warm, ice when it melts, cool and calm sea, undisturbed, save when rushing to and from me. I want to believe in your eyes, in the honesty of them, when everything else in the world seems faulty and godless and fake through and through. Taylor's eyes will always be true. A very great, great romantic Valentine's Day poem. Thanks for sharing that one. You got another one, too. Yes. Uh, speaking of sonnets, Tim, this was the first sonnet that I ever wrote when I was 15 uh, in my freshman year of high school. And we were studying Romeo and Juliet. And it's kind of funny because at the time I had no experience writing sonnets. And uh -huh. I thought that all sonnets had to be written in Shakespearean language. And so I started writing <laughs> yeah, I, sonnets. I think, uh, I think a lot of young people think that. Yeah, so I have like happily anon in here and like other Shakespearean phrases, but uh, yeah, so I'll read this one. Sonnet one, essence of a maiden. Whence I saw her, I never can recall, for so overwhelming a sight was she, a slender maiden so fair and so tall, laden with awe to be admired by me. At long last, her vibrant eyes met my gaze revealing to her my deep affection. Her angelic beauty is what I praise, a prime picture of most pure perfection. Her blue-gray eyes are like a sunless cloud. Her face is exotic like wildflowers. This glorious goddess shines in the crowd. The dirty crowds among my sweet are sour. Happily anon, I'll lay hold of my sweet and lift this enchantment off of her feet. Excellent. And all those archaic words work, I think, in that poem. Thanks for sharing that, Zachary. Yeah, no problem, Tim. Always enjoy being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. You too. It was Zachary Honeycutt with uh, two Valentine's Day poems. And we have another uh, first-time caller, um, 719. And Bev, I haven't forgotten you either. We'll get back to you for sure. Let's call it the 719 number and see who that is. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle, and you are live on the air. Who am I talking to? Uh, this is Deb Tannenbaum. Ah, I'm so glad you called. I see, I see your poems here. We have Winter Air. Uh, yeah, I got to, um, I had a... Oh, yeah, mute the stream you're listening to. Just talk to me on the phone. Yeah, okay. I um, ran downstairs because... I had to go do something, so now I got to bring up the poem again. <laughs> no problem at all. So as you do that, um, explain a little bit what it's about. Um, oh sure. Actually, I had written this in response to the Lenin lyric, ah. and then I wasn't sure where to send it, and so I ended up revising it. <laughs> anyway, so it's um. Excellent. Yeah, I can see some of the Lenin lyric in there, yeah. and, then it, and then it goes in a different direction. Interesting. Yeah, there's a little ghost of that. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. But um, but then um. Turned out it was about an act of rebellion anyway, so I thought I'd, although I'm nervous, call and uh, <laughs> read it to you guys. Perfect. And well, I'm so glad you did. 
Yeah, so um, it's called Winter Air. Uh, Trudging. Lucy is a small child trudging. Hooded yellow snowsuit, rubber boots, aching for the forbidden fringe of dark woods and icy river, just there at the far, far edge of her barren backyard. Mother stays indoors, forbids river, makes rules, forbids risk, is quick to scowl, slow to forgive. Lucy is a slipping away child, a dreaming one, gazing at sky, sucking on snow, yearning for wild. Oh, to walk on that one wide frozen river, mitten soggy, hazel eyes opened wide, stumbling, falling, crawling through brambles, over stones, snow ice falling from boughs above. She keeps going, steps onto river, thrilled, free, cold, wet, glowing. Lucy trudges upon the river, humming. Mother careens towards her, screaming her name, firing off missiles of fear and fury. Lucy startles, falters, her steps stop, her voice freezes, then her voice unfreezing, keening misery, wanting mother, dreading mother, her animal keening, drawing mother faster. They meet, Lucy wails, mother kneels on ice and rotting leaves, pulls Lucy to her, scolding, soothing, their voices duetting in the chill winter air. Oh, that's a great poem. Such drama played out in that winter air. Thanks so much for sharing that. Oh, well, thank you. It was fun to do it. Yeah, well, I hope you share another one soon. Okay, thanks a lot. Yep, take care. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, so that was, uh, um, that was uh, Deb Tannenbaum, and let's put Deb in the phone book so that we know who it is next time she calls. Add contact. There we go. Okay. So I believe that's all the callers. I have a few poems to read as well. Oh, no, Bev. I told you I wouldn't forget you. And I almost did. So sorry, Bev. Let's call it Bev, Bev Wendell Atherstone. Hey there, Tim. Hey, Bev. How are you doing today? You there? Hey, yes. Okay. <laughs> so how are you doing? Great. How are you? I'm good. So what do you have that you wanted to share? Okay, so I responded to your uh, an act of rebellion, and uh, also because, oh, I've got you in the background somehow. Oh, yeah, just, uh, t- you know, hang up or mute your computer, and then uh, just talk to me over the phone. Okay, I think I've got it. Okay, good. There? Yeah, yep, still here. Okay. Okay, so, okay, uh, so, so you have two combined, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've combined the poet's response. Uh-huh. <laughs> along with the act of rebellion, because we're having some problems up here in Canada. You oh, know, I'm yeah. in Alberta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and... kind of a perfect uh, prompt for this week for Canada anyway. Huh? Or actually, all over the it... world, those are spreading. Yes, it is. So my first one is Stonewalled, and the form, it, it's in a form poem. And uh, it's about what's happening in the capital city of Ottawa mm-hmm. in Ontario. Okay. Stonewalled. And just when we thought pandemic chaos could go no further, 
rows of semi-trucks amassed along the Canadian border, blocking essential goods from traveling to and fro, threatening perishable loads, meat, fruit, and vegetables, sparked by growing anger over mandates to show vaccination passports at our country's gates, slow-rolling freedom convoys feature complaints clogging highways with no thought of restraint. Gargantuan 18-wheelers won't be moved. It's just not happening, these drivers proved, by blocking choke points other long haulers need for their livelihood so they can't proceed. Tow truck drivers refuse to touch this blockade, fearful they'd never live down the part they'd played. If they helped the cops, opponents would close ranks and kill their businesses. So sorry, no thanks. My second poem is Freedom for Whom? And um, these are some of the things that are happening during the blockade. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess this, these are my love poems, too, for democracy. So I'm kind of covering all three bases today. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Let me, uh, so was this submitted through Poet Respond? It's on the same page. It's on the same email. Oh, is it? Okay. Let me... Um... Freedom for Whom? Freedom. And Stonewall, they're on the same email. Oh, I see. Okay, here we go. You got it? Yep, yep, go ahead. Okay. Freedom for Whom? Shocked families cower under racial slurs hurled from big rigs in a slow roll convoy. Side by side, steel occupiers bulldoze through Ottawa streets, squatting near Parliament, urinating on war monuments, and skating on front lawns, incessantly honking their selfish freedom slogans, they break the city's peaceful rhythm. Police confiscate their jerry can diesel, their lifeline, aware of the bad optics of police taking fuel from their women and children, they send them in. The police are outwitted, but not the businesses now unreachable who have lost trade, not parents as schools are closed, not residents who see this 18-wheeler grid for what it is, plain old bullying. Hypocrisy screams as those calling for freedom curtail others' rights. Political demands to bring down the government scream sedition. Such behaviors by bad actors funded by dark money are provocations. They'd like nothing more than to be martyrs. To what end? To end our democracy. But our leaders, cautious, refuse to take the bait. The rule of law is powerful. It will prevail even against hate. Great. Thanks so much for sharing that, Bev. For Freedom for Whom was the, the, the yeah. most recent of two. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you so much. Yep. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. This is Bev Mundell Harrison with Freedom for Whom and uh, Stonewalled. And let's call up... Um, Joseph Nolan just called in. Now let's call up Joseph. And then we'll get to the, the few poems to read um, as well. Hello. Hey, Joseph. How are you doing today? It's been a while, I think. Yeah, it's been a while. How are you doing? Uh, good. Uh, so uh, what do you got for us? 
Uh, seizing the means of obstruction. Interesting. And is there anything you want to say to introduce it? Oh, sure. Of course. Uh, there's a couple little points I want to make. Seizing the means of obstruction is a play on the Marxist uh, slogan of seizing oh. mm-hmm. the means of production. Yeah, interesting. There's a reference to tank man in Tiananmen Square. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, a lot of people may not be familiar with him, but he was the guy who stood in front of the tank by himself, all alone. And when the tank would try to move forward, he would stand in front of it and move from side to side as the tank tried to get around him. And so uh, we've also got a reference here to the TV show from the 60s, uh, uh, Get Smart, with uh, Maxwell Smart, uh, which was, uh, you know... It, it, conflict between chaos and control. Control was the governmental thing, and chaos was the evil subversion uh, force in the, in the world that was trying to overthrow all forms of government, I guess. Very interesting. I, I, I remember watching that when I was a kid, but uh, it's been a long time. Thanks for, yeah. So go ahead whenever okay. you're ready. Okay. Seizing the means of obstruction. Seizing the means of obstruction against the will of the vanguard, saying enough is enough. Just like Tiananmen Square. Thousands of ink men, armed with big rigs and snow, blocking roadways and bridges, saying the mandates must go. There is a rock in a hard place between chaos and control. Where is Agent 99? Do we need to call Get Smart? It's a bounce back like a Super Bowl, and the truckers are in between, encroaching tendrils of tyranny and the ways of freedom we need. Very excellent. I'm so glad we could have that uh, that other perspective on the on the truckers too. Thanks for sharing that, Joseph. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, appreciate it. Bye bye now. Day. Yep. Yeah, I think everyone's familiar with Tiananmen Square. I hadn't thought of the parallel at all between that. And it's interesting. Um, I, I also had not never seen the full screen, that, that famous shot, which which everybody, it's just an iconic photograph of the man. And it's like one man versus one tank, it feels like. But then there's another photo, which I'd only recently seen, where it zooms back and shows the whole scene behind. And it's a long row of tanks. It's like an entire army. And somehow that's an even more powerful photo to me than the, than the iconic one. Um, anyway, thanks for sharing that, Joseph. That was uh, seizing the means of obstruction. Let's go to uh, the poem, the Saiku for this week, really quickly. The Saiku for the week is based on this story, and I wrote the Saiku, um, you know, last night, like I always do. And I didn't realize that this article is a little late, so it's supposed to be Poets Respond. I didn't notice the date because I'd just seen it come across my transium. Um, it's actually published from January twenty sixth. Uh, so it's a little bit late for Poets Respond, but oh well. And this is the article here. This is from the uh, uh, the Royal Society Publishing. Cranial volume and palate length of cats under domestication, hybridization, and in wild populations. And what this study did was look at the brain size of cats. And it found, and it's sort of assumed to be true that that the brain size of domesticated animals shrinks, and they wanted to see if it was the case in cats. And they even bred cats together um, who were wild and domestic and ended up with a brain size in between. So um, so the act of domestication itself, like being domesticated, makes you 
less intelligent, really. I mean, and it makes sense. I mean, if you look at my cats, they just sleep and they have no predators to worry about, nothing to hunt. Um, they have to whine for their food at a certain time of day, and that's about it. So, um, and even when we had mice, they kind of batted them around and then didn't know what to do with them. So, um, it's kind of sad for cats, but but hopefully uh, we're not turning ourselves domesticated in the same way. Um, but here is a little psycho about this uh, science story here. Domesticated cat as strophe. Domesticated cat is strophe. That is your psyku for today, and that is the show for today. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. It's been a really wonderful one. Um, the prop for next week is going to be write a poem about one of your ancestors. So I know what Jerry Stephenson's going to write about, maybe. Um, those guys fleeing the volcano. That sounds perfect. Um, write a poem about one of your ancestors is the prompt for this week. And uh, the guest for this coming week or next week is going to be Marjorie Sacer. Now, Marjorie's been a... It's one of those poets we've published many times over the years, dating back decades, really. Um, she has a new and selected book of poems out, The Track the Whales Make. Uh, Marjorie is one of those great storytellers, a Nebraskan poet, um, one of the great ones in Nebraska, along with Ted Kuzer. And um, it's going to be really fun talking to her and, and seeing some of those stories. It is Rattlecast number 132 with Marjorie Sacer. Um, write a poem about one of your ancestors is the prompt. That is next Sunday, February 20th, the regular time, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Hope you have a good one. I hope you enjoy your Super Bowl parties if you're having them. Watch the commercials if you're. Uh, the commercials are always fun. And um, I'm rooting for. Uh, for the, the Bengals and Joe Burrow, just for uh, for all our Ohio poets out there. Um, I had to pick somebody, and I'll pick them. So have a good day, and I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>